got a new line of attack against Bernie Sanders. It's uh, just as pathetic as 90% of the other lines of attack. I'm going to open up with that story in just a second. Politico is doing concern trolling at its finest, and you're definitely going to get a kick out of it. We also have a, a rather surprising story. Remember how last week we spoke about how Donald Trump had his record low approval ratings? Well, Uh, At least according to one poll, um, the polar opposite is true. So, very strange. John Hickenlooper, also known as the breakfast cereal, attacked Bernie Sanders, and we're going to take his ass down a few pegs in response. Elizabeth Warren had had a prescient warning about the recession, and I have to show you the clip because it just, it shows you, um, broadly speaking, which candidates are on the right side of history. And then um, Ken Klippenstein of TYT Investigates actually uncovered something incredible that I'm going to talk to you guys about. Uh, that'll be a little bit later on in the show. So without further ado, let's get started. And we'll do that with um, <clears throat> Bernie Sanders getting attacked in the most hilarious way possible. So Politico has a hilarious new hit piece out on Bernie Sanders, and I would say that this piece is concern trolling at its finest. Take a look. Republicans pray for Bernie as Democratic nominee. Some GOP lawmakers would like nothing more than a Democratic Socialist to be the opposition's presidential nominee. So that, that's the, the tone of the entire article, is they're going, ah, you would be handing an election over to the Republicans. 
If you went with somebody as radical as Bernie Sanders, um, it's hilarious. So Senate Majority Whip John Thune has a quote in there. He says the following. If we can run a race against a person that's an out-of-the-closet socialist and promoting socialist ideas, it's a great contrast for us. Then you have Mitch McConnell who said, um, or he's urging Republicans to emphasize to voters that the Republican Party is the, quote, firewall against socialism in the country. Uh, John Cornyn, slash Cornine, slash however you pronounce it, he's a senator from Texas, and he's up for re-election, and he's trying to cast his race as, quote, a referendum between free enterprise and socialism. And then at the end of the article, they even have some Democrats who are on the record as like, yeah, sure, throw Bernie under the bus, no problem. Now, I thought you guys were all about unity, but apparently when it comes to your left flank, um, it's the opposite. You're not about unity. You don't want to play defense. You don't want to rep that ideology. You don't want to welcome them into the club. You want to attack them, and you want to take them down a few pegs. So at least let's be honest and upfront about it. I just don't want to hear another word from any of the centrist or right-wing Democrats about unity because you don't believe in it. You use that as a tactic to scream at the left to vote for your preferred shitty candidate. Like, I get ideological disagreements. They happen. They exist in the world. Totally fine. But at least be honest about it. Yeah, I disagree with the left flank, and I agree with uh, the corporatists. At least say that, but they don't say that. They gaslight you. Oh, yeah, why? Unity, unity. Anyway, let's talk about how Bernie Sanders is terrible. I thought you just said unity. What do you mean? Um, so it was Joe Manchin and John Tester, the Blue Dog Democrats who were basically saying, like, yeah, I, it would help, uh, it would be very good for Trump if Bernie was the nominee. I love how they're so convinced that blue dog Democrats are somehow more popular and somehow better when uh, you, somebody should ask Joe Manchin and, and John Tester, oh, hey, um, how are your fellow blue dogs doing? Oh, right, they all lost, and they're not there anymore. And they got wiped out from coast to coast. So they don't, you have to understand that they actually do not give a shit about evidence and data and what happened in the past few election cycles. They work backwards from their conclusion. So they believe it as a, an article of faith. It's an axiom. It's a tautology to them. It's true because it's true. Democrats need to be centrist. Democrats need to be corporatist, and that's the way to win. And don't ask me to provide an actual argument for it. Don't ask me to give you any evidence of it. It's true because it's true. Even though I, the best example of this, man, is Joe Donnelly versus uh, Sherrod Brown. Joe Donnelly ran in Indiana as basically a Republican, even though he's a Democrat. He released ads praising Reagan nonstop. He spoke about how he agrees with the wall, and he was shitting on universal health care and all that stuff. And... Um, he got his ass handed to him in, in the last election. Now, Sherrod Brown, the state over in Ohio, he ran pretty unapologetic, uh, unapologetically to the left. He was hammering away on trade. He's been kind of upfront on many economic issues, fighting for, you know, right alongside Bernie Sanders with a more left-wing philosophy. So he ran not hiding his leftism, and he won. So you couldn't get a better test. Sure, there's a handful of examples like Joe Manchin, 
who's like, you know, a fucking magician who spits in the eye of the base and still gets elected in, uh, in West Virginia. But outside of Joe Manchin, I mean, all the other centrist Democrats and, and hardcore corporatists and blue dogs, they get wiped out because it turns out it's a terrible strategy when you're running to be a Democrat and you tell the Democratic base that you think they're stupid and you agree with Republicans <laughs> because the Republicans aren't going to vote for you because there's a D by your name and they can't stand you. So, you know, Republicans aren't going to vote for you because they're drunk on Fox News and the Democrats are not going to vote for you now because you basically told them not to vote for you because you were shitting on all left ideas. So, but again, they don't care about any of that stuff. They don't care that you had Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez who's an insurgent left candidate who knocked off one of the most powerful Democrats in the country, they literally argue, like, that's a one-off. That doesn't count. That doesn't matter. Now, in regards to what was going on in this article, have they looked at no polls? But apparently they haven't. Apparently they've, they've looked at no polls. Every single poll of Bernie Sanders versus Donald Trump has Bernie kicking his ass. I mean, like, seriously foot thoroughly implanted in booty hole and twisted just in every conceivable way. He's up nationally. He's up by about a dozen points. Now, this is where people say, yeah, but well, how those polls work out for Hillary? (laughs) She was only up by three or four points. And by the way, she won the popular vote by millions. So the polls were not that far off. It's just that the way that her support and Trump's support was distributed throughout the country was such that Trump won the Electoral College because he knocked off the Rust Belt. So it's not like, it's not a compelling argument when you're like, oh, what about the polls last time? They weren't right. They weren't really that far off. The pollsters were wrong. They all said Hillary was going to win. But the polls themselves were not that far off because she won the popular vote. So it's weird when poll denialism becomes like an entrenched um, belief. And they don't even give specifics to it. They just broad, like, yeah, fuck the polls. Whenever we question polls, we have a very specific reason. Like when it's Biden versus Bernie and they poll next to no millennial, like, okay, then you can criticize the poll. But if every single poll at the national level and every single poll in the Rust Belt is saying Bernie wins, and that's the other point, is that Bernie has internal polling, which saw that he was up 10 to 12 points in virtually every Rust Belt state. (laughs) Well, There is no denying that. That's as real as a heart attack. So notice, in order to make this argument, they didn't mention a single poll in the article. Why? Because they couldn't. Because if they mentioned any poll, they would have said, oh, my God, Bernie's way up. So it's, it's so frustrating where you know damn well if they were writing an article back in 2016 or 2015 about how Hillary's better versus Trump, there would be citations in the article of like, and this poll has her up four points on Trump nationally. So when they want to make the case, they'll make the case and they'll lay out poll numbers. When they want to ignore the poll numbers to make their case, they'll ignore the poll numbers to make their case. Again, notice, they're working backwards from their conclusion. Now, the final point I want to make is this. It's the entire Republican Party, and when I say that, I mean in Washington, D.C., and like half the Democrats, certainly all the corporate centrist Democrats, those are the people who are like, Oh, well, I mean, obviously Trump wins if it's Bernie versus Trump. Notice something. These are the same people who were absolutely convinced 
that Mitt Romney would be Barack Obama in 2012 and that Hillary Clinton would be Donald Trump in 2016. You think that's kind of relevant, right? Shouldn't that be added in the article like, oh yeah, by the way, all the people who are making this case were dead wrong in the last two elections. Dead wrong. Dead wrong. They don't mention that. They don't talk about it. They have to bury that fact. Because you're supposed to think when you read this article, oh, very serious Republicans in D.C. and very serious Democrats say it's a gift to Trump and Trump will win if it's Trump versus Bernie. You think they would learn some humility. You think they would learn it. You think they would go, you know what, maybe enough with these fucking bold-ass predictions that I get dead wrong because I'm massively out of touch with the American people. But they don't learn, and they don't care. Because really, there is an agenda here. And the agenda is, as I've told you guys repeatedly, what corporate media does is they push out the narrative that they want to push out, and as they're pushing it out, they just pretend like they're calling balls and strikes. So in other words, if you want to take down Bernie Sanders, you release a thousand articles going, Bernie, a uniquely weak candidate against Trump. Many are saying this. Isn't he a weak candidate against Trump? Wouldn't Biden be really strong against Trump? Wouldn't Booty Judge be really strong against Trump? But Bernie, that would be weak. That would be weak. So they, as they push out exactly what they want you to take away from it, they say, us? No, we're not the originators of this narrative. We're just, we're just saying we're just reporting on what is. So it is the case that Bernie's weak, and we're just saying that that's the objective reality. And now we're going to write a thousand articles about that and then try to make people think, plant a seed and make people think, well, I guess Bernie is weak against Trump. Everybody's always saying it in mainstream media. But then meanwhile, when you go to the actual people, the polls are overwhelming, and it's not even close. So they still, listen, guys, the real divide in this country is not even Democrat versus Republican. The real divide in this country among the actual people is the haves versus the have-nots, the elites versus the populace, people who care about average people, the working class, and people who only represent that top 1%. That's the real divide in the country. So when Donald Trump gets exposed as fighting for the 1%, and Bernie comes out there, and he's a real populist, and he rips the mask off of Trump's fake populism, yeah, Bernie's going to win. Listen, man, I've said it before, I'll say it again. The, The hard part for Bernie is the primary. The easy part for Bernie is the general. Because if it's him in the general, what's Trump going to do? What's he going to do? He's going to scream crazy Bernie and get elected? Like just talk, oh, he's so crazy. Oh, Venezuela. Oh, socialism bad. When you're a one-trick pony and the stuff you're saying is shouting into the abyss and it's not landing because you got the other guy who's focused like a laser on Medicare for all, getting everybody covered, focused like a laser on increasing wages, uh, focus like a laser on, on ending the wars. Focus like a laser on an infrastructure deal. Focus like a laser on criminal justice reform and legalizing marijuana. When you have a guy who's pouring on substance and the response is a reality star buffoon who only has nicknames and scorn, what's going to happen? You know what's going to happen. They don't know, you know. So this is just, I mean... The same people who got it dead wrong in 2012, the same people who got it dead wrong in 2016 are now convinced, and they're trying to let you know, oh, yes, 
Republicans are praying for Bernie as Democratic nominee. Well, I got news for everybody. Republicans in D.C. are idiots. As if they know. Like, as if they know (laughs) what's good or what's not good for them. They have no idea. They're up their own ass. They're complete and utter corporate sellouts, and they're backwards as fuck on social issues. They're wrong about everything. And now we're supposed to go, oh, my God, the people who've been wrong about everything for decades are now saying they want Bernie as the nominee. Well, guess what? Democrats in 2016 wanted Trump as the nominee on the Republican side. And then what happened? I mean, they, what, they were really scared of Marco Rubio? There's a decent chance Hillary would have beaten Marco Rubio. There's a decent chance Hillary would have beaten Jeb, but not Trump. So perhaps they don't know Dick, and that should be mentioned in the article. Or better yet, the article shouldn't have been written at all because it's a piece of shit. Okay. Now let's talk about Iran and what's happening over there. Things are heating up rather quickly in Iran. Trita Parsi says the following, Iran's patience has run out. A year after Trump quit the Iran deal and began punishing Iran for adhering to the agreement, Tehran has now announced reciprocal steps it will take to reduce its collaboration, potentially even starting 20% enrichment. It's getting serious. So, I just need everybody to understand, you know, the order of events here, because Iran, as verified by the IAEA, International Atomic Energy Agency, they repeatedly followed the agreement to the letter. So they allowed in inspectors nonstop. They only enriched to a certain level for research and for power for their power grid. Um, And... The United States, in response to that, the Trump administration spit in their eye and pulled out of the deal. Now, that had devastating effects on the Iranian economy. Um, We also threw sanctions back on them, massively increased sanctions, which is a violation of the agreement. That's a violation of the agreement, and we did it. We did it. And Europe was trying to abide by the agreement, but, you know, the U.S. is strangling the economy. They're trying to force their oil exports to zero, which would really be the total collapse and implosion of the economy. And the whole idea is, let's try to force regime change. And they finally had enough. And now basically what they're saying is, our patience is just gone now because we've been nothing but patient. And you guys kept violating the deal. You guys pulled out of the deal. And now... Okay, fine. We'll we'll start enriching uh, even to twenty percent, and I can't wait for now the media in the U.S. and the government in the U.S. to say, "Oh, how could you do such a?" Th-? And what do you mean, how could they do such a thing? You put sanctions on on goods, including medicine. There were stories about how people were dying because they didn't have access to the medicine that they needed. 
So what do you mean, how could they do it? You made them do it. That's obvious. If you just stayed in the agreement and followed the agreement, everything would be hunky-dory now. And it's also hilarious that at the same time, Trump and his administration have ripped up this agreement. They're basically pursuing the same kind of an agreement with North Korea. What? That's the exact framework of the Iran deal that Trump pulled up is the exact framework of an agreement that he's actively pursuing with North Korea. So there is no consistency. There is no logic. There is no method to the madness. No. Uh, In 90 to 95% of the foreign policy issues, Donald Trump is just abiding by uh, the wishes and the orders of his merry band of neocon bloodthirsty idiots, people like John Bolton, people like Mike Pompeo. So um, Iran has finally said, all right, fine, fuck you. Fuck you. And I think what this is, guys, this is, um, this is a move, again, to try to be a deterrent to literal regime change. They see what the U.S. is doing in Venezuela right this second. They see what Trump has been doing around the world with, again, on 90 to 95% of foreign policy issues. He's escalating. He's being more hawkish, more interventionist. So the Iranian regime, this is self-preservation mode. And self-preservation mode is what? Okay, we're, develop- we're developing the weapons. We're developing the weapons. So you, you want to make a move on us? We're developing the weapons, dude. We can deter you. We have the ability to counter-strike. So I'm just letting you know. And by the way, that was the same logic originally for North Korea. Everybody always flips out. North Korea is doing missile tests. Ooh. That was them scared shitless that the U.S. government is going to try to topple them. So that's them saying, oh, 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 oh. We can fight back, so please, please don't topple us. It's always hilarious how in U.S. media, everything is portrayed that we do as, by definition, defensive, even though all the evidence is in the opposite direction. So, and check out this next tweet. This is just as important. Barbara Starr of CNN says the following. U.S. officials tell me the threats from Iran, threats from Iran, include specific and credible intelligence that Iranian forces and proxies were targeting U.S. forces in Syria, Iraq, and at sea. There were multiple threats of intelligence. There, excuse me. There were multiple threads of intelligence about multiple locations. The officials said. Oh no. Oh no. Here we go. Now, were any specifics given? No. CNN reported this. Also, Axios reported this. Same vague bullshit. Where the reporters go. I spoke to somebody who is in our government and in the Pentagon and, has, and is in the CIA, and these folks are telling me that Iran is about to offensively strike us in Iraq, Syria, and on the seas. It looks like they are going to attack us. So, oh, it look, we should probably do something in response, shouldn't we? No evidence, no data, no details. The media, Barbara Starr at CNN and the reporter at Axios, they are being stenographers to power, as if the Pentagon and the CIA have never had an agenda and never driven the ship and never decided, let's try to build a case to attack them, even though we're going on the offense, we have to portray it as being defensive so that people are cool with it. Shame on these so-called reporters, man, because... How many times has this happened? How many times have we been misled into illegal and offensive wars? It's happened time and time and time again. 
since World War II. So, but you don't need to take my word for it. We have literal quotes here from the Trump administration, and it was spliced by Move On uh, back-to-back with comments from the build-up to regime change in Iraq, the build-up to the war in Iraq. Take a look at this. continuing to finance terror and gives assistance to groups that use terrorism to undermine Middle East peace. The Iranian regime continues to fuel conflict, terror, and turmoil throughout the Middle East and beyond. Many nations are joining us in insisting that Saddam Hussein's regime be held accountable. Iraq will be held accountable. The danger is already significant, and it only grows worse with time. This is a threat to the region and a threat to the world, and it gets worse day by day by day. The same tyrant has tried to dominate the Middle East, and Iran's ambition to dominate the Middle East remains. They could attack our allies or attempt to blackmail the United States. America will not be held hostage to nuclear blackmail. Regime change in Iraq is the only certain means of removing a great great danger to our nation. And therefore, the only solution is to change the regime itself. Because I really do believe we will be greater as liberators. Freedom is right around the corner! They're doing it again. They're doing it again. By the way, right now, they're doing it in Venezuela. They're, they're backing a regime change coup, and it, it appears to have failed. So at the last moment now, uh, Trump is trying to save his own ass politically and pawn off all responsibility to John Bolton. And he's like, I don't, I don't know, man. Why are we being, I mean, why are we, why do we do this? Uh, it seemed, we're being maybe a little too militaristic, and I, I don't know. I don't know about uh, whether or not this should continue. It's all him. Blame him. Blame him. So, happening in Venezuela, now they're about to do it in Iran, which is, forget about it, in terms of the level of death and destruction. You think the war in Iraq was bad? If there's a war with Iran, that's going to make the war in Iraq look like peanuts, look like nothing. It's amazing to me that... This dynamic, which is clear as day to people who are paying attention and to people who give a shit, this dynamic is not being called out anywhere except on new media. And even that, not all new media, not even all left new media, very specific corners of left new media, independent media. I mean, it's the same script. It's the same goddamn script. They're trying to build a case and pretend like it's defensive. They were targeting us, maybe, maybe not, with zero evidence and no places and no information. They were targeting us, and uh, we must maybe uh, strike back. It's the same script. It's a different decade, and our media is going right along with it. Mainstream media, corporate media is going right along with it. Notice, they... We just covered the story last week. There were zero anti-regime change voices allowed in the conversation in mainstream media on the issue of Venezuela. Zero anti-regime change voices. 
You're telling me they're not doing propaganda? Listen, this all goes back to, to Noam Chomsky's Manufacturing Consent. If you haven't read that book, read that book. He makes the case that corporate media functions oftentimes as a bigger servant of the state than literal state media does in other respective states. So, you know, because the argument is, oh, wow, that's RTs. That's funded by the Russian government. They're, They're obviously puppets of the Russian government, whereas corporate media actually reflects the interests of the CIA and the Pentagon and our government more than even state media reflects other respective states' agendas. And yet, you know, obviously he makes a, an ironclad case for that argument, but when you see that 0% of the voices on Venezuela were anti-regime change, what's, I mean, what other, what other explanation is there other than there are multiple levels of, of filtration where only certain voices are allowed on, and you know those voices are going to more or less toe the line, and they're going to limit the Overton window to a spectrum where the furthest right-wing position involves boots on the ground, you know, let's uh, take them out and do an all-out war, and then the furthest left-wing position is let's use soft power, so let's back rebel groups to do the dirty work for us, let's, you know, uh, back a regime change coup led by others, and we'll give outside support, we'll give intelligence support. So that's the Overton window, that's the spectrum of debate, but all is agreed that regime change is awesome and the right thing to do, and we're, we are correct for doing it. And the premise of the entire conversation is we're allowed to do whatever we want. The U.S. government, we don't need to follow international law. We get to override international law because we mean well by definition because we're the good guys by definition. So they don't allow actual debate on the issue. The, the spectrum of debate is way off to that right end, right end of the spectrum. And this is exactly what we're seeing now with Iran. Go ahead, turn on CNN. Go ahead, turn on MSNBC. Are you kidding me? We just did, did the thing with Rachel Maddow in Venezuela, siding with John Bolton. She's now pro-war in Venezuela because Donald Trump must stand up to Vladimir Putin. And Vladimir Putin nominally wants the U.S. out of Venezuela, so now I want the U.S. in Venezuela. This is deranged, man. This is deranged. We're at the point where the loudest voices in our society and the majority of the media apparatus, they're not focused on the issues, and they're not focused on what's best for the American people, and they're not focused on truth-telling. And that's how you get a wag-the-dog-like situation that we're in right now. Listen, hands off Venezuela, hands off Iran. What we're doing is illegal. What we're doing is offensive. What we're doing is genuinely destabilizing. Blowing up the world yet again at the behest of the military-industrial complex and the corporatocracy. And you might say, hey, Kyle, that's conspiratorial. You're getting Alex Jones territory. Don't take my word for it, dog. John Bolton said it himself on Fox Business about a month and a half ago or two months ago. He said, yeah, it would be great if we get our hands on that Venezuelan oil. Venezuela has like the largest oil reserves in the world. And Bolton just came out and said it on Fox Business because he's among friends on Fox Business Network. And usually it's just rich executives watching Fox Business. And he said, yeah, it'd be great for uh, U.S. capital, for Western capital, if we get our hands on that oil. So what do you think is going on in Iran, too? 
to government that's hostile to U.S. interests, and uh, we want geopolitical control of that very vital and important region in the world. And just like when we overthrew Mohammed Mossadegh um, and we put the Shah into power in 1953, the West wanted cheap oil. It was the U.S. and the U.K., and the Shah gave the West super cheap oil when Mohammed Mossadegh, his whole thing was, I'm going to nationalize the oil and give the, uh, the money to the Iranian people. And that's when we said, okay, well, we're going to topple your fucking ass because we ain't going to let that happen. And then, of course, the overthrow of, Mah- uh, of Mohammed Mossadegh and the installation of the Shah, the Shah inevitably led to the 1979 Islamic Revolution. So because of Western influence, um, there was a, a far-right uprising and that led to the Islamic Revolution and the current theocratic government that we have to this day. And now we're trying to overthrow that government. Here's a radical idea. How about we have no right to do any of that stuff because Iran is not about to attack Nebraska. How about, you know, there is no radical Venezuelan terrorism that's about to invade the beaches of Florida, so we can't do shit when it comes to Venezuela either. How about our country's crumbling, our infrastructure gets a grade of D+, Places like Flint, Michigan still don't have clean water, and we should take care of our own goddamn business before we pretend like we're the policemen of the world and we go everywhere around the world and we try to topple governments and control everything. How about we back 73% of the world's dictatorships? So when our government argues, we got to stop Iran because they're a dictatorship, we got to stop Maduro because he's a dictator. How about that argument rings incredibly hollow because we just gave a $100 billion weapons deal to fucking the Saudi Arabian government, and they're one of the worst authoritarian dictatorships on the planet, also a theocracy. So it's just, it's sickening, man. It's sickening. Ah! Hands off Iran, hands off Venezuela. But we're marching towards war. And if you're a media outlet and you are not routinely calling this out for what it is, you are missing the ball here because this is an all-hands-on-deck type situation. Everybody should be screaming from the rooftops, no intervention, no more war. Okay. All right, let's go to Joe Biden. Okay. Where is this clip? So Joe Biden unveiled his uh, slogan in an interview with ABC News. This ought to be good. Everybody knows who Donald Trump is. And I hope people know who I am. So I think the folks are ready to choose uh, truth over lies. The president has a motto, make America great again. Do you have one? Make America moral again. Return to the essence of who we are, the dignity of the country, the dignity of people, treating our people with dignity. And that has been the main thrust for you all? Yeah, to bring this country together. 
He's going to do a Hillary. He's going to do a Hillary. He's doing a Hillary right this second. Bring this country together. Let's return to who we are. Let's show dignity and treat our people with dignity. Let's make America moral again. Okay, putting aside the vagueness of it, if you actually wanted to make America moral, and by the way, I can't, you can't add the word again because when were we totally moral? For about 14 minutes after uh, you know we freed the slaves, but it took a war to do it when every other country didn't need a war to do it, when uh, Jim Crow and segregation ended. I mean, but then immediately after, like, we've never had universal health care in this country, for example. We've never had a minimum wage that's a living wage. You know, post-World War II, we've been to a thousand different wars that we shouldn't have gone to in the first place, and they're illegal and offensive in nature. When the fuck were we moral? When were we moral? When were we moral? Answer the question. He can't answer the question. But even if you drop the again part, you just say, make America moral. You know how you would actually do that, Joe? Give everybody universal health care. So Medicare for all. Give everybody free college and wipe the college debt slate clean. Do a massive infrastructure deal. Pull out of every single illegal and offensive war that we're currently engaged in. That's how you would make America moral. Free every nonviolent drug offender and legalize tax and regulate marijuana. That, Joe, is how you would make America moral. But he doesn't mean that. He doesn't mean that at all. And in fact, when you look at his voting record, it's abysmal. Joe Biden voted for the Iraq War. And you're going to talk about making America moral again? When were we moral? Were we moral when everybody voted to illegally and offensively invade Iraq and topple a government that didn't attack us? And we relied into it because they said Saddam Hussein was working with Osama bin Laden, which was preposterous. Is that when we were moral? Were we moral when you voted for the Patriot Act and got rid of our um, constitutional protection from unreasonable search and seizure and got rid of habeas corpus and due process? Were we moral when you voted for NAFTA? Were we moral when you voted for Wall Street deregulation, which led to the subprime mortgage crisis and the Great Recession? When the fuck were we moral? When were we moral? But more importantly, put aside the substance of it. This is, he's going to hit you with a platitude sandwich, dog. That's all he's got. That's all he's got is a platitude sandwich. Make America moral again. The essence of who we are. We have to show dignity. We have to bring this country together. Bro, you're bringing a fucking super soaker to a gunfight. You do understand that, right? New York Times reported the other day that he's going to run on on this message. Donald Trump is an aberration. He's not like all the wonderful good people in this country, including all the wonderful great Republicans. He's the problem. Donald Trump is the problem. Let's return to normalcy again. Let's make America moral again. So, in other words... He's going to try the exact same strategy that Hillary Clinton tried. What did Hillary do? Oh, Donald Trump. You have to understand that he's not like the other Republicans. He's, he's unique, and he's uniquely bad and uniquely wrong, and he's a unique danger to the country. How'd that work? It didn't work, Joe. It didn't work. It didn't work. As they are... Ripping you a new asshole 14 times to Sunday, you're going to stand there on stage and be like, this man is the only problem. You get rid of him and everything's okay. No. People's lives are broken. Our country is broken. This idea that you could just run on, he's the problem. No. The conditions that led to him are the problem. He's also the problem, but the conditions that led to him 
having two totally broken and utterly corrupt and rotten political parties that serve the interests of the elite time and time and time again and screw regular people, only in a country like that can you get somebody like Donald Trump elected because Donald Trump effectively ran on a message of, I'm not like him. I'm the outsider. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change the system. I'm going to drain the swamp. Well, now, he didn't actually do that, but that message is one of the reasons why he won, because it resonated. People thought, anything but what we have now. And Biden's argument is, let's go back to what we had prior to Trump. The same fucking shit that led to Trump in the first place. Uh... Listen, the good news is, I told you, I don't think he's going to go anywhere, bro. I think he's... By the time the first votes are cast, I think he's going to be in third place or worse. That's what I think. Now, I could be wrong. I have a pretty solid track record of predictions, um, but I have been wrong from time to time, and it's possible I'm wrong, but he's not offering anything. He's not offering anything. And he ran for president two other times, and he tanked in the polls the two other times. He was considered a favorite the two other times. And he got utterly destroyed the two other times. So I think the best predictor of future action is past action, and I think that that's probably what's going to happen. He's utterly, utterly, utterly out of touch with the base. You know, like the other day, he just said, he was asked a question about immigration, and he was like, well, um, you know, there's a reason why these hordes are now coming here. And everybody was like, did you just refer to them as hordes? Like, what what is this, a fucking zombie movie? So he can't help himself but shove his foot in his mouth 14 times a day. So I think eventually that's going to catch up with him, and he's going to tank in the polls. But it's just, it's so infuriating to see, basically, Trump versus Hillary 2.0. And at the same time that's happening, mainstream media is gaslighting everybody and pretending like, oh, it would be a gift to Trump if it was Trump versus Bernie. No, it would be a gift to Trump if it's Trump versus Biden or Trump versus Booty Judge, who's an empty suit, or Beto. Or Kamala. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Ah. Make America moral again. The dude who voted for the Iraq War and NAFTA and the Patriot Act and Wall Street deregulation wants to make America moral again, he says. Listen, they're just out of, he's just out of touch with the times. His whole ad was, you you saw his launch ad, right? We covered it on this show. Check it out if you haven't seen it yet. His whole launch ad was, Nazis are bad. That was his whole launch ad. No shit, Joe. And then? And then? There's no and then. Uh, I realize this country's in trouble when Donald Trump said there's five people on both sides and one of the sides was chanting white lives matter and Jews will not replace us and holding tiki torches and defending a Confederate statue. I, for one, think white supremacy is bad, which is why I voted against school bus desegregation when I was a young politician in Washington for the first time. You have to think that's how you know he's just a, a rank opportunist. He said he's on video early on in his career saying, I tried to prostitute myself to big donors. They said you got to come back when you're 40, son. So he did. He went back when he was 40. He's already done fucking fundraisers with the Comcast CEO and, and GOP donors nonetheless. He got the, That's what he's going to try to do. Me? I'm, 
let's make America moral again. Let's go back to how everything was beforehand. So why don't I go to all the big money Democratic donors and the big money GOP donors and tell them, listen, I'm still going to let you keep all your money. I'm still going to let the status quo be as is. I'm just not going to do mean tweets. So, you know, I will be a calm, cool, and collected leader who will continue screwing regular people and listening to the elite. So support me. I'm telling you, man, Hillary 2.0, Hillary 2.0, make America moral again. If you actually cared about making America moral, you'd be screaming about getting out of these wars and giving everybody Medicare for all, giving everybody health care. But you don't, you don't give a fuck. You don't care. You don't care about the issues. Joe Biden's running because he's got a fucking giant ego. That's why he's running. He wants that title. You know, I want to be president. I want the accolades. I want the love. I want the adoration from the crowds. But I don't want to do anything for it. I just want to be a status quo manager and defender. They don't get it. They don't get it. They're so out of touch with the times. He does not understand what it's like for regular people and how regular people are struggling. Okay, now, let's go to Denver, bruh. This is, a, this is a really fun story. So this is uh, incredibly cool. This is in the Hill. They say, voters in Denver approved a referendum Tuesday decriminalizing psilocybin, the psychoactive substance in hallucinogenic magic mushrooms. Final results were released Wednesday afternoon showing 50.6% of the 176,000 voters approving the referendum and 49.4% voting no. Initiative 301 will require police to make arresting people for personal possession or use of psilocybin mushrooms the lowest law enforcement priority in the city and county of Denver. The measure does not legalize psilocybin. Hallucinogenic mushrooms remain illegal in Denver and the rest of Colorado, and selling them is still a felony. All right, so let's just be crystal clear about what this is because there's a little bit of confusion out there. Decriminalization is not the same thing as legalization. Legalization means, you know, you can go to the store, the local store, and even though there could be regulations, you could buy the product. So you can, you know, go to a Walgreens or a CVS or a fucking mushroom store or whatever and say, I would like to purchase some magic mushrooms, please. That is legalization. Decriminalization is it's still illegal to sell it, but it's not a criminal penalty if you're caught with it. You understand? So there's definitely a distinction. Step one in, um, you know, in the march towards freedom here is decriminalization. That's step one in going in the right direction towards freedom and liberty. Um, step two would be legalization, but it's freaking awesome that now we have a situation where We've gone beyond marijuana now. Because marijuana, everybody knows, is still illegal at the federal level, but you have so many states who've legalized it, even for recreational use, and the federal government's being kind of hands-off with that, at least at the moment, which is a good thing. Um, But now we're finally starting to have the conversation even beyond marijuana. And now they're talking about psychoactive substances. Now, I'm not the kind of person who jives well with, with hallucinogenic substances, psychedelic substances, But, you know, there's a lot of scientific data that points to the conclusion that 
these are very beneficial and they are transformative for many people. They're, you know, these are substances that can give people epiphanies and can really change their lives. And I'd be a fool to not recognize that, even though these are not my preferred substances. It's, there's reason to believe that this is going to have tremendous beneficial effects for people. Now, that also doesn't mean that there's no such thing as a bad trip, because there is. Um, but, you know, is that a risk that we should be willing to take? I think yes. If you can go to the fucking store at 5 o'clock in the morning and get yourself, you know, three bottles of gin and drink yourself into a stupor, yeah, of course you should be able to take a substance like this, which has way more upside. And by the way, it is not at all addictive. Psychedelic substances you do not get addicted to. It's just a total different classification of drug, of substance, than what you would normally think of when you think of substances like cocaine or something, which can be very addictive. Um, psychedelic drugs, hallucinogenic drugs, they are not addictive. So that, that would stem from a fundamental misunderstanding from people who would argue that, you know, something, oh, my God, people are going to be addicted to mushrooms. That's not a thing. That doesn't happen. So even less so than weed, because they say weed is psychologically addictive but not physically addictive. But you could argue there's at least some level of addiction there. Um, with psychedelic substances, at least from my understanding of everything I've read about it, is there's no fear of addiction. Um, so I think it's wonderful that they decriminalize it. I think they should go even further and legalize it, but that's just me. You know, when it comes to social issues, I'm super libertarian, and I believe in freedom, and I believe in you should basically be able to do whatever you want to do as long as you're not hurting anybody else. Um, and I think if we actually wanted to abide by that principle, we would move in that direction with most drugs, I think the only kind of drugs that should be banned are, um, you know, the ones that like crocodile, which is called the cheap man's or poor man's heroin, which like rots off your skin after you use it for less than a year. And really the only reason I think that stuff should be banned is because um, the way it's made and what it's cut with is just, it will almost like instantly kill you. Uh, and you know, like fentanyl, that also should be uh, banned or at least heavily regulated. But I think that basically safe versions of these kinds of drugs should be legal because I don't see why they shouldn't be. I don't think the psychological or, or the societal, I should say, downsides of these drugs being legal, I don't think that that outweighs what it is with them illegal. So in other words, there, we have more problems associated with all these drugs when drugs are illegal because then all these drugs go to the black market. When they're on the black market, there's a giant spike in crime. There's a giant uh, spike in, in mafia activity, so organized crime. Um, violence shoots through the roof. So the way that you get rid of the violent crime aspect of this stuff is to legalize, tax, and regulate drugs because then you wipe out the black market. And when you wipe out the black market, the criminals are not in the market. So it's much better to go to a safe store with a security guard and people wearing suits and ties and, you know, go get your drugs that way than go to some back alley where there's somebody laying there on the ground who OD'd and somebody waiting to rob you right around the corner. So, I mean, this stuff is relatively obvious and we, we learn from prohibition, but we still have prohibition with most drugs. So that makes no sense.
and this is definitely a great step in the right direction. And um, I think people are going to be surprised as to, even if they were to legalize it, I think people would be surprised as to there's not that much of a spike in people using it. Because that's what we've seen. That's with the evidence that's come out to this point with other drugs. That's what we've seen. It's not like there's a giant spike in people doing substances once you legalize them. Um, so it's fine to basically have total information out there for everybody and educate everybody about all these substances, but, but then at the same time, give people the ability to use them without locking them in a cage if they get caught. Um, and again, I would go further and just say, let people go to the store and buy them because I think that that's the proper thing to do. But this is uh, pretty historic that now we're starting to have the conversation about decriminalization of drugs beyond marijuana. And the trend, the trend is clear. And I do think that over time, specifically on social issues, we're just going to get more and more open-minded, more and more tolerant, and we're going to be okay with more and more freedom. And I think that that's a good thing. I think that on economic issues, we're fighting a, a, a tsunami of resistance, corporate resistance. So in other words, when we try to make um, giant leaps and, and get to the proper positions on economic issues, we struggle because there's so much big money and lobbying on the other side. And, you know, they want to prevent the minimum wage from being a living wage. They want to prevent everybody from having uh, Medicare for all. They want to prevent free college. So it's much harder on economic issues for us to make gains. But on social issues, we can make gains because oftentimes the lobbying effort against these issues isn't as strong. It's still there. It's still there. Believe me, the DEA does not want any of these drugs being legalized or decriminalized. Believe me that the alcohol companies don't want any of these drugs legalized or decriminalized because they view it as competition. Um, but still, the lobbying efforts are not that strong, and now there's a, a blossoming industry on the other side that can do counter-lobbying efforts. So definitely a step in the right direction and really interesting. And Denver and Colorado in general, they really lead the way on a lot of these issues, and credit to them. Okay. All right, let me do one more and then we'll take our first break. So I wish this next story was a joke, but unfortunately it's not. Mike Pompeo apparently said that our melting sea ice presents, quote, New opportunities for trade. This reminded me of when Hillary Clinton said the war in Iraq represents, uh, I think, business opportunities. That was her phrasing, I believe. Now we have Mike Pompeo saying our melting sea ice presents new opportunities for trade. It's time to start considering the fact that Maybe we just go extinct at some point. <laughs> I mean, we are going to go extinct eventually. That's inevitable. I mean, at some point, the fucking sun will get so big and it'll engulf the earth. 
but um, I don't know if it'll literally do that, but the sun is obviously expanding, and at a certain point, it's not conducive to life living on Earth. But before we get to that point, it's very possible we go, you think, barring even some catastrophe, because climate change, well, that's a slow-moving catastrophe, but that also is a catastrophe. And it looks like, as a species, 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 whatever, you, you know what I'm saying, uh, we're too stupid to deal with it. Like, we haven't evolved to the point of grappling with very long-term consequences. Even when those long-term consequences, mind you, are starting to show up. Like, we've been warned about this for a long time, and now the consequences are starting to show up. But they're still not making that logical connection. And even if they are making that logical connection, they don't care. Because the corruption and the greed override the consequences. I mean, seriously, when you are saying melting sea ice presents new opportunities for trade, what you're saying is, okay, yeah, the sea ice is melting. We know it's melting. So he's agreeing, at least on some level, that, yeah, climate change is happening. It's real. The sea ice is melting. We see it. So he's admitting that. He's admitting that. But then his reaction to it isn't, holy shit, what are the other consequences of something this extreme and drastic occurring right in front of our eyes? He doesn't, he doesn't care about that. There is no, like, okay, this will cor- correlate to rising sea levels, which will then correlate to people migrating away from coasts because they can't live there anymore, which will then, you know, become maybe conflicts over territory. There will also be, because of the extreme heat and increased drought, there could be famine, which would then lead to an increase in the prices for goods at the store when you go shopping, which will then lead to giant political instability, which would then further lead to conflict, He doesn't connect those dots because he doesn't care to connect those dots. He just acknowledges, okay, yeah, sea ice is melting, but this is new opportunities for trade. So that's the mindset of somebody who is a ruthless capitalist. Like, the business angle overrides everything. Everything. It's an opportunity. Sure. The war in Iraq, opportunity. Uh, climate change. Opportunity. An opportunity. If anything, you notice it's it's an opportunity to do a Green New Deal, where you get to 100% renewable and green technology as quickly as possible, and you also employ millions of people in the process. See, that would be the opportunity it would be rational to take away, but no, he views it as more um, he said for trade. I also think he's probably thinking of oil drilling. There's been even disputes over whose oil it is in certain areas in in the north. You know, I, there's, I guess, some disputes around, hey, Alaska and Russia, where's the line? Where, and, and now there's conflict and there's disagreement as to who owns the rights to what area. So there's another potential type of conflict that comes about as a result from this. But it really is devastating when you, when you realize that 
that these guys just don't think about these things in the way that normal people do. You know, they just don't think about these things and care about the consequences, care about the fallout, care about trying to fix it. They're really callous and really corrupt and really greedy. And they're either stupid and they don't get it or they understand it, but they don't care, which is just super nihilistic. And it's selfishness. Because what about the future generations? What about them? He's just, I don't know, it's too far out in the future to give a fuck. It's devastating. And I just want to show you, so the, the spectrum on the far right, when you talk about this issue, it ranges from what Mike Pompeo said, which is, eh, whatever, new opportunities for trade. That's the business angle of it. And then you have, you know, this other faction of the far right, which has some thoughts on this in their own respect. And for that, let's go to our old, our old buddy, um, televangelist Brian Fisher. He weighed in on this, and um, he has a rock-solid cure for climate change for us. The problem is not global warming. The problem is the sin of man. And the sin of man, not pumping CO2 into the air, but the sin of man as he goes on to say, is not following the rules and the statutes of God. That's the sin. In time, the penalty for that sin is the heavens are shut up. There's no rain. There's a drought. Animals are dying. Crops are not growing. What's the solution? If my people, who are called by my name, in the face of this environmental catastrophe, the solution is not to go to Congress and get them to crack down on carbon emissions. The solution is to go before God on our faces and repent of our sin. Repent of your sins to fix climate change. Yeah, yeah, I got nothing to say. (laughs) I want to, like, parody that a little bit, but I don't, where do you go to parody it? He already did the parody. He did it. He did it. Game, set, match. Over. Checkmate. I don't have to say anything. Dude, you're self-refuting. You're self-refuting. You know you suck at this when all I have to do is just play your clip, and that's it. We're done. I don't need the commentary. Everybody heard it. Everybody got it. You made your point. And uh, I'm pretty sure people's interpretation of it, Brian is not what you think their interpretation of it is. Like, what do you expect? People to listen to that and go, yep, yep, that, this guy nailed it. He is a genius. Nobody did that. Even other very religious people are going to look at that and go, bro, what? There you go. There's the spectrum on the far right when it comes to this issue. One of them is, only God can save us, and the other one is, eh, it's a business opportunity, so who gives a fuck? All right. When we come back, we got another poll on Trump. We got Fox Business debates expensive pharmaceuticals. And then we got Elizabeth Warren warning us about the crash that was coming. You don't want to miss 
any of it, stay right there. We'll be right back with all that and more.
All right, we back, bitch. Goodness gracious, y'all. Goodness gracious me. All right, I got uh, a message from Lilith. She says it's it's VE Day, which is uh, victory in Europe in World War II. Or that was yesterday, I'm sorry. Yesterday was VE Day, and it's basically Holocaust Remembrance Day. So I guess this is, uh, or yesterday was the day, what year did the war end? 44, 45? Let's look that up. What year did World War II end? I'm going to guess, I don't know if it's 44 or 45, it's one of the two. What year did World War II end? 45, okay. Yeah, I don't know why, I thought it was 44, but World War II was September 1st, 1939 to September 2nd, 1945. So where did VE Day come from? Let's look this up too. VE Day. Yeah, Victory in Europe Day. Victory in Europe Day, generally known as VE Day in Great Britain, or V-E Day, North America, is celebrating the formal acceptance by the Allies of World War II of Nazi Germany's unconditional surrender of its armed forces on May 8, 1945. Interesting. So I guess it continue. I guess um, I guess they ironed out all the details by September. Or were there holdouts who were still fighting until September? Who knows? But anyway, May 8th, 1945, VE Day. Very good day in history. So, all credit to the Allies and to the uh, Soviet Union helped us, too. A lot of people don't know that. A lot of people don't know that the Soviet Union, um, there were more Soviet soldiers killed fighting the Nazis, than there were U.S. and U.K. soldiers killed. Interesting little fact that I think is kind of varied in the West for propaganda reasons. But anyway, um, all right, let's, let's jump into the next thing we got here. It is a poll about Trump. So last week there was a poll that we discussed that highlighted how Donald Trump was at a record low approval rating. And this week, we have the exact opposite. So a Gallup poll came out, and it says the exact opposite. The Hill reports the following. President Trump's approval rating reached new heights in the second half of April, according to the Gallup poll, as nearly half of voters gave him positive marks. Trump's approval rating ticked up to 46%, up slightly from 45% in the first part of April, and the highest mark to date for Trump in the Gallup poll. It comes on the heels of strong economic numbers and the largely favorable outcome of the Russia investigation. Trump remains overwhelmingly popular among Republicans, 91% of whom gave the president positive marks in the latest Gallup poll. That figure falls just short of the record high of 92% approval among GOP respondents reached in a Gallup survey in November. Among Democrats, 12% said they approve of Trump's uh, job performance, according to the poll. That figure matches the previous high among Democrats recorded in April 2017. So this is fucking interesting, man. This is interesting. 
So what are the potential reasons why um, this could be the case, that he has his highest approval rating ever? Well, there's the obvious ones that they mentioned, which is the positive economic numbers that are coming out. Um, It could also be that the Russia investigation, regardless of all the noise coming out around the Russia investigation, it is true that one of the bottom line findings was no collusion, or at least no evidence of collusion. Um, I think it's fair to say it's an open question on obstruction. You can certainly make a case for obstruction, but you would have to prove intent, and that seems difficult uh, to do, but it certainly looks at face value like he obstructed. But best case scenario, you have up in the air for obstruction, no evidence of collusion, so that did kind of help him. And then the other thing is, I think one thing Democrats underestimate at their own peril is Trump's nonstop campaigning. To my knowledge, he's the only president, definitely the only president in modern history, but maybe the only president who has just not stopped campaigning. From the fucking time he won until today, he's been campaigning all the time. He always goes and does these rallies. And I actually think he likes that. Like, he likes it. I don't know if you guys remember, there was an article that said he asked John Kasich, he wanted Kasich to be his VP, and he basically told Kasich behind closed doors, hey, listen, you're going to run the country. He's just going to go around and give speeches and do his rallies. And Kasich said no, because he didn't want anything to do with Trump. But that does not surprise me reading that story. It's an interesting story, but it does not surprise me because Trump strikes me as that kind of a dude. Like, he likes to feed off the energy of the crowd. He likes to, you know, give his speeches and and, uh, fire crowds up and do his greatest hits. And I think that that's one of the reasons why Approval among his base is still incredibly high, over 90%. That's literally the most popular any president has ever been with their base, ever. But now the other fascinating thing is, in 2016, you know what percentage of the Democratic vote Trump got? Now you might be thinking, well, what would you guess? What would you guess? 2% maybe? You know, two of every 100 Democrats voted for Trump, maybe, right? 9% of Democrats voted for Trump in 2016. 9%. But now his approval rating with Democrats, at least according to this Gallup poll, is 12%. And what, you know, what do you say the margin of error is? Plus or minus three percentage points? So it could be as high as 15%. It could be as low as 9%, which was still the number that voted for him in 2016. So listen, here's the thing. There was the poll that said he was, was the least liked, which was, I think, 36% or 38% popularity. That was last week. It was a Quinnipiac poll, I think. And now we have the Gallup poll saying it's the most likely he's ever been. Um, I don't know which one the outlier is. I think the bulk, bulk of polls are in the middle, so maybe somewhere around 42%, 41 42% thereabouts. Um, but either way, I don't think we can – I don't think that Democrats can kind of take, take this in stride and act like he's, he's definitely going to get defeated. That's not true. It's not a guarantee that he's going to get defeated, especially if you go with the wrong candidates in the general. Um, But now I also have to add, if the media and the Democrats were effective at resisting, there's no way his approval could be this high. No way. Because, like they cited, for example, oh, the strong economy, that's one of the reasons why he's doing so well. It's not the strong economy, it's that the marketing coming from him and the Republicans and their propaganda arm in the media, they're 
argument on the economy is resonating much more than the Democratic argument, because we just covered the story the other day. Amy Klobuchar went on CNN. CNN just agrees, by the way. The economy is so wonderful. Oh, my God, it's so great. And, and uh, Cloud Boot Jar is over there like, well, well, uh, maybe it is. Um, but, I, you know, we need a president who's not going to tweet mean stuff. Oh, God. So she basically conceded, yeah, the economy is great, and then pivoted to, we need better decorum and civility. Oh, I mean, that's like, just fucking tattoo loser on your forehead, because you're going nowhere with that kind of nonsense. But again, like I just said, it's not even that the economy is great, it's that the relentless marketing from the Republicans and uh, the media makes it so that... Not over 90% of Republicans are like, hey, yeah, the economy's great, man. But we've gone over the numbers in detail. I don't give a fuck that the stock market is, is through the roof, which is basically what they're banking their argument that the economy is great on and that unemployment is low. We, we just told you the actual unemployment rate, which includes people who've given up looking for a job, uh, which includes people who are underemployed, which is not uh, included in the official unemployment rate, which is three point something percent. The actual U6 unemployment rate, which is the real unemployment rate, is like 7.8% or something like that. So the Democrats need to learn how to argue, and, and the media should be honest about this. You can't say the economy is wonderful when 40% of Americans can't afford a $400 emergency, when 78% of the country is living paycheck to paycheck when half of workers in America make $30,000 a year or less, um, when the minimum wage is not a living wage, and we have millions of working poor people in this country, when we have people who die because they don't have health care, which is anywhere from 30,000 to 45,000 people every single year, when we have over 40 million people without health insurance. You can't, when we have people with fucking student loan debt and credit card debt up to their goddamn eyeballs, you can't say that it is a good economy. But what happens is Fox News pumps it out relentlessly. Fox Business, CNBC pump it out relentlessly. CNN sheepishly agrees because they don't know dick. Fucking all the Republican politicians are pretending, yes, that's a great economy, yes. And then the Democrats agree also. And then none of them even bring up, apart from what I already mentioned, we're in a goddamn bubble. We're in a bubble. So even the, even the stock market being high is a goddamn illusion. It's not real. That's going to pop in the same way that it popped back in 05, 06, 07. Everybody's like, oh, the good times will never stop. The good times are so good. And then what happened? There was a fucking, it all crashed. Subprime mortgage crisis and great recession. And if you said in 05 and 06 and 07, I think this is going to crash, people would have laughed at you. Like, ha, ha, sour grapes. You don't know anything about the economy. Ha, ha. And then we were proven right. Hmm, let's see. You had... A Democratic president who deregulated with the Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act, repealed Glass-Steagall, that was Bill Clinton. Then you had George W. Bush come in there, and George W. Bush also deregulated and cut taxes for the rich. And he was elected in 2001, or 2000 or 2001, whatever it was, doesn't matter. Uh, and then, oh, would you look at that? When George Bush was about to exit office, that's when the crash hit. So we're on borrowed time, bitch. We're on borrowed time right now. And instead of the media telling it like it is, like I just did, and instead of the Democrats telling it like it is, they concede. Like, yeah, well, there were, there were articles a few weeks ago, Democrats are scared to run against Trump because uh, they think the economy is too good. 
only totally out-of-touch elites with their heads up their ass who've been in Washington, D.C. for decades, who've got over a million dollars in their bank account. Only those people could, could come up with an argument like that. Go talk to any of the working people in, in Congress right now. Go talk to AOC and ask her, hey, is the economy good? She'll laugh at you. It's utter nonsense that the economy is good. So, listen, I think that's why he's doing well. He was able to relentlessly brag about Russiagate because he said, no collusion, no collusion, no collusion. Um, and he, he's able to market nonstop on the economy, and he has a, a very um, effective and efficient propaganda arm helping him do that. And he's nonstop doing rallies and still campaigning. So nobody makes his case more than Donald Trump makes his case. It doesn't matter how slim of a case he has, he'll just keep making his case. And with the Democrats in disarray and not giving a, a streamlined message, the, the reality of the situation is Bernie Sanders and his team um, should be the ones basically setting the Democratic agenda and the entire Democratic Party should be running with Bernie's talking points and we need Medicare for all, we need free college, we need a living wage, we've got to end the wars. If that's what the Democrats were doing, and Bernie can tell you the million ways in which the economy's fucked up. If the Democrats were going with his message, the Democrats would be crushing right now, and, and Trump would not be at his highest approval rating. But he is, at least according to this one poll. Now, again, I think there's an asterisk there. He's still 41%, 42%. He's still vulnerable. But I think it, it frustrates me that there was even an outlier poll, because it, honestly, his approval rating should be like 25% right now if the Democrats and the media knew what they were doing and knew how to counter-argue, but they don't know how to counter-argue, and it's embarrassing. Uh, I mean, I really think Bernie would crush him in a general election easily because Bernie knows how to make the arguments. But when you don't know how to make the arguments and your leadership is fucking Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi, maybe it's not all that surprising that he's, at least in this poll, up to 46%. Okay, now... Go to Fox Business. Okay. So Fox Business Network debated a $2 million price tag on a pharmaceutical drug to save dying babies. Um, This is really something. You would think that this is not debatable. (laughs) And then everybody would go, oh, shit, that's fucked up. Maybe we should fix that. But, of course, when you're in the belly of the beast in, uh, of the corporate propaganda network, they're going to debate it. And, hey, at least they had on a dissenting voice who was like, I think I will take the side that it is bad that we have pharmaceutical drugs for babies that cost $2 million. Again, crazy, but take a look and then we'll discuss. Prescription drug price is a new treatment that could save infants' lives, maybe a, getting a shocking sticker price, over $2 million. Novartis believes the drug that treats spinal muscular atrophy, a disease that typically strikes infants and can kill them before the age of two years old, will justify the seven-figure price tag. Joining us now is Dr. Mikhail Barshavsky, also known as Dr. Mike. Dr. Mike, it's great to see you this morning, too. What do you think about this? I think it's a bittersweet story. Uh, first, you have a, a genetic disorder known as spinal muscular atrophy where children 
generally that have the worst form of disease die before the age of two. That's a horrible condition to be born with. Now, if you have a medication that can treat that illness, and not just treat it, Maria, cure this illness, that's magical. That's amazing. We're making great progress. But then when you hear that it's going to be at such a high cost of $2 million for a single treatment, that's scary not only to patients but also to insurers. As a, as a doctor, my thing is we need to have access to medications. We need to have reasonable prices for medications. If you're going to have a life-saving treatment, a curing treatment, but it's unaffordable, what's the use of even having that treatment? But these children will get this. We need to be clear about this, Dr. Mike. These children, if they have this genetic disorder and there's a way to treat it and save their lives, they will get it. The hospitals and their doctors will make sure that they get it one way or another. Well, uh, how many, how many uh, children uh, infants suffer from this? Uh, uh, 300 a year are born in the U.S. Which is, is is, does the U.S. government have an orphan drug law that uh, provided assistance to make sure that uh, small number of patients get this kind of treatment? Uh, I, I'm not familiar with that law. I know that drug law. I know that what becomes difficult for patients, regardless of what condition they have, is that it's difficult to treat pharmaceuticals as a typical commodity. For example, if uh, a parent has a child born with spinal muscular atrophy, they can't choose not to purchase this medication. So whatever it costs, whatever insurance plan they have to buy, do we they're going to pay for it. Do we know what it costs to develop this drug? The, the cost is high, and that's what Novartis is saying the reason for this huge price tag is. Mm. But when there's been independent evaluation of this drug and what it should cost based on evaluation of uh, a quality life score, life years gain scores, they say that the price that's being set right now is too high. Yeah, Obviously, sure. Novartis is arguing that, and I think that it needs to be heavily justified as why a drug needs to cost at such a high rate. Real quick on the measles, uh, the World Health Organization urging international travelers to get vaccinated. <laughs> yeah, I think that it's bad that we have a $2 million price tag on uh, medicine for dying babies. Uh, get off it, get off it, get off it, get off it. Uh, and, if, uh, so, and so vaccines are, you know, vaccines, there's vaccines that are an issue with measles and stuff. And uh, why, you know, let's talk about this instead. <laughs> now, to be fair, I don't know if they're actually like, get off it, get off it, get off it, when he um, starts voicing an opinion that's reasonable. Um, but it could have been that they had a hard break and they had to squeeze in another segment, but it was an insanely quick transition that made you go, wait, what? Are we off the topic already? It seems like we should probably linger on this topic. And I love the people who are trying to rationalize it. Like, yep, how, I mean, how much does it cost to uh, create the drug? I mean, research and development, research and development. Did you know that pharmaceutical companies spend anywhere from two times more to 19 times more on advertising and marketing than they do on research and development? And then they turn around and go, I don't know we had to charge you $14 quadrillion to save your life because of all the research and development we're doing. We've spoken about this before. I don't know if it's the case for this particular drug, but there are countless drugs where the research is done at universities funded by taxpayers, and then pharma companies swoop in there, get the rights of the medication, and then resell it back to people and jack it up and price gouge you. Think about that. So you pay for the upfront uh, you know, research on it, and then they come in and grab it, and then jack it up and have a giant profit margin and resell it to you, even though you paid for the initial investment. It, I mean, our system is fucked up, and we have a system where big pharma executives and Wall Street executives 
and the military-industrial complex, they own the government. So they get whatever the fuck they want. And then we're at a point now in America where, I mean, show this clip to somebody who lives in the UK, where they are debating on a major news network. They're debating $2 million price tag to save a baby's life, good or bad. And it was like three versus one. Only one dude was like, well, you know, this, uh, I don't think so. This seems a little much. Well, I, isn't there a program that says that something maybe kind of will take a little bit off the price tag or whatever? And I love how everybody else is like, mm, I don't know. No, maybe. May, uh, who knows? <laughs> They're just so flippant about it. Like, oh, baby dies, doesn't die, gets the medicine or not. And then one of them says, these children will get the medication. We should be clear about that. Oh, should we? Because I don't, I don't know if you're a kid who grew up in fucking Harlem and you go to the underfunded hospital there, are they really going to trot out a Novartis drug worth $2 million and, and say, oh, here, no problem. And by the way, if people get it, if they do get it, then what? Then what? Are they just in debt the rest of their lives? There, I was reading tweets. There was a tweet. Uh, it's a Medicare for All account that tweeted, like, tell me the moment that you got radicalized by our healthcare system. And there were people who were saying, you know, my dad had Parkinson's or my dad had this drug and he was getting treatment and it was taking a long time and he knew that there was no light at the end of the tunnel. So he killed himself so as to not bankrupt the family. Let me break that down as simple as possible to you. You have a chronic illness that is going to cost a fucking arm and a leg in order to pay for your treatment of that illness. In the process of paying for that treatment, you're draining the bank account and you're screwing over your wife and your kids because all that money that was going to be used in the future is now being drained on your medical bills. You have a tremendous sense of guilt over that. So you kill yourself so as to not burden them. That's our healthcare system. That's our healthcare system. I was just reading a story the other day. Americans are now hopping in buses. You want to talk about a caravan? You know how Trump's always a caravan coming into America. Sad. Caravan from Mexico. Sad. There's a caravan of Americans going to Canada to get cheaper medication because they can't afford it here. Our system's broken, man. If you're not fighting for Medicare for all, you, I mean, I'm done with you. I'm done with you. Because you don't understand what's going on in this country if you're not fighting for Medicare for all. Or you have no heart. Now, I was doing some research because I was like, this is insane. Let me look this up. You know what the situation is in the UK if you get sick and you need medicine? You go to the pharmacy, and it costs between $10 and $20. And then it literally says on a label, it, so let's say your drug costs like eight grand for whatever reason. It's an expensive drug or whatever. You need a lot of it. It doesn't matter. It'll, it says on the fucking thing on the bottle paid for by the UK taxpayers. So you got to pay 10 or 20 bucks and it says paid for by the UK taxpayers. See, this is, guys, everything is a matter of choice. We have, our government has, and the elites in our system have, they have made a choice to tell you to go fuck yourself and to tell you to pay up $2 million for some treatment for your dying baby. That's a choice. That's a choice our society made. Now, we also made a choice to spend fucking trillions of dollars on the F-35-2, a new fighter jet, when we didn't even need it because the old ones were just fine, a new fighter jet, which, by the way, didn't work for fucking, like, years. Now it's finally working. But trillions of dollars on research and development for that, $7 trillion in Iraq, 
$2 trillion in Afghanistan. The list goes on and on. $4 billion a year as a subsidy to ExxonMobil. When they're already one of the most profitable corporations in the world, they need taxpayer money, billions of dollars every year? Are you fucking kidding me? You have to be kidding me. So we've made a choice as a society what we're going to value, what we're going to pay for, what we're going to take off the table, what's going to be considered a public good, the commons, versus what's going to be considered private. We, it, it's been a choice. So it's not, it's not like written in the laws of nature. Like, what do you mean? I mean? It has to be the case that a pharmaceutical company charges $2 million or your fucking baby dies. This is less than what it is. If you think that we can't do anything about that, you've been thoroughly thoroughly brainwashed by our system to the point where it's comical because we can do something about that you know what we can do about that subsidize it you know what we can do about that make all of our medications like that have a universal coverage system for medications where all you have to do just copy the uk system yeah okay you go to the doctor you pay 10 bucks or 20 bucks out of pocket you're good that's it that's your medication that's it doesn't matter how much it costs you're good Taxpayers are going to pay for it, man. Taxpayers are going to pay for it. What do I want my, my tax money going towards? What do you want your money tax money going towards? Do you have any idea? I would write my tax check with a goddamn smile on my face if I knew every time I was writing that check, a large percentage of it is going towards health care and pharmaceutical medications for people who need it. I would love to pay my taxes. If I knew, listen, this is going towards healthcare for people. This is going towards pharmaceutical medication. This is going towards free college. This is going towards wiping the debt slate clean for all the people who are up to their eyeballs in debt from college. Um, this is going towards a program which has uh, vacation for everybody, a certain amount of time per year guaranteed by law. I, I would love I, universal daycare. Hey, let's have a system where it's universal daycare and people don't have to go broke fucking because they got to go work and somebody's got to watch the kids. They don't have anybody to watch the kids. Other developed countries have done this, man. I want all of my money going towards that. I mean, I'm not for abolishing the military, but we could definitely cut it 50%. I mean, we have, what, 190 military bases around the world and you're going to tell me that that makes sense? Fuck out of here, man. If we had priorities that made sense, I would pay my taxes with a smile on my face, dude. With a smile on my face. But that's not the system we have. And we also have assholes in suits and ties on TV arguing, well, maybe it has to be the case that it's $2 million or your baby dies. Go fuck yourself, you corrupted goon. Okay, let's, um, let's talk about the breakfast cereal Hickenlooper. So the breakfast cereal Hickenlooper gave a speech in New Hampshire, and he broke out the brass knuckles for Bernie Sanders. Now, he didn't call him out by name because perhaps he knew that, you know, he would go from 0% in the polls to negative 5% in the polls if he did that. But he was clear as to who he's going after. So this report is from the union leader. They say the following. You have to hand it to the GOP for achieving the near impossible, said Hickenlooper. 
Just years after the collapse of the Soviet Union, their greedy mismanagement has revived the lore of socialism for a whole generation of Americans. Who would have imagined the Koch brothers and Donald Trump could help resuscitate the discredited ideas of Karl Marx and Joseph Stalin? They continue, the apparent references to Sanders didn't stop there, with Hickenlooper going on to criticize elected officials in Washington who would, quote, demonize the private sector to score political points and uh, branding universal health care and guaranteed jobs to policies supported by Sanders as hazardous to the American people. Oh, my God. These are certainly big ideas. They're also not good ideas, said Hickenlooper. They would bloat the federal government. They would massively raise taxes. They would depress economic growth. And let me assure you, in the end, they would hurt working people. The Sanders campaign did not return a request for comment. Dude was literally arguing Medicare for all would hurt working people. He argued that Medicare for all, I want to get the exact words here, Medicare for all is, quote, not a good idea. These guys act like we don't already have the answers here. I can't stand it. It's this American-centric garbage view of, like, I'm only going to argue based off of theory in my head as opposed to looking at real-world examples from um, every other developed country. It's such a narcissistic, naive view. Or he knows the truth and he's just a liar. But I actually don't want to say that. I think that it's more likely he's just a dipshit who doesn't care about the healthcare system in Japan, the healthcare system in South Korea, the healthcare system in the UK or Australia or Denmark or Canada. He doesn't care. He's not curious. He's not curious about that, so he hasn't learned about it. So he goes out there and says, these are bad ideas. This is like Joseph Stalin. Joseph Stalin? Joseph Stalin killed 20 million people minimum. And your argument is Bernie Sanders is like Joseph Stalin. No, as Bernie has said himself repeatedly, he's not in favor of any version of authoritarianism. He's not an authoritarian communist. Bernie Sanders is pretty obviously and clearly a social democrat, libertarian leftist. For those of you who don't know what that second term means, uh, libertarian leftist means libertarian on social issues, leftist on economic issues. So libertarian in this context means he wants to legalize marijuana, for example. That's a libertarian position. He wants to free nonviolent drug offenders. That's a libertarian position. He wants the government out of... uh, you know, women making choices to have an abortion or uh, to birth control, all that stuff. So that's what Bernie is. There's not an ounce. Bernie has never said, you know, I think we should um, control the media through force. I think we should use violence against people who disagree with us. He never said that. He never said that because he doesn't believe that because he's not an authoritarian. But you're fucking equating him with one of the absolute monsters of history. A guy who was deeply authoritarian, who massacred people. The idea that you equate a guy like Stalin with Bernie Sanders, you cannot... I mean, that is the polar opposite. That reminds me of, like, we kind of mentioned this in the show previously, but the Nate Silver argument on identity policy is like, Biden and Bernie are both old white men, so maybe they're very similar. What? That's like saying Dick Cheney and Noam Chomsky are very similar. They could not be more different. He's just saying, um, 
Stalin and Bernie are both nominally on the left, and they're both nominally socialists, even though they're not. But So therefore, yeah, they're all the same. And, and this is not good for the American people. This is going to hurt working people. I want to get the exact wording again. These are certainly big ideas, but they are also not good ideas. They would bloat the federal government, even though Medicare for All would save money. They would massively raise taxes, again, even though they get rid of the private taxes of no premiums, no deductibles, no copayments. They would depress economic growth. What? And let me assure you, in the end, they would hurt working people. Because if there's anything Hickenlooper cares about, it's the working man which is why he's running as a centrist corporatist. And those are the people who absolutely gutted the working class in this country. We haven't seen wage growth since the fucking 1980s. Since the 1980s, dog. And he's like, let's go to that philosophy. Let's go to the fucking Bill Clinton philosophy. Oh, God. Listen, on this alone, he's... Just rule him out. It's like, this reminded me, there was a... a article in, I think it was the National Review, but I could be wrong, where you had a Republican who was arguing, did you know the Nazis were national socialists and Bernie Sanders is a socialist? So Bernie is kind of like the Nazis, am I right? That was the article in the National Review. Hickenlooper has now done a very similar thing. Did you know Stalin is like on the left and Bernie's like on the left and they're like super similar even though they couldn't be more different? See, this is what you do and this is what you say when you don't know political definitions or you don't care and you don't have a real argument to use against Bernie. Notice, it's the thing that I'm fucking fascinated by is that what if I'm standing there questioning, having an interview with the breakfast cereal, and I say to him, all right, listen, dude, here are the facts. Here's how much the, uh, the healthcare system in the UK costs per capita. Here's how everybody's covered. Nobody goes bankrupt over their medical bills. And you go down the list of all the developed countries where, you know, they have a single-payer healthcare system and it works. How is he going to respond to that? How's it, what are you going to say? What are you going to say when I fucking checkmate your punk ass before you even get to utter a goddamn word? What are you going to say? What are you going to say? Um, no, because fucking Marx and Stalin or something. And, uh, yeah, this is, this is, you're demonizing the private sector. What the fuck? Did I say video games should be made by the government? No. Did I say fucking couches should be made by the government? No. Did I say we should totally abolish any and all aspects of the private sector? No. So why is it demonizing? To say certain things should be off the table and public means I'm demonizing the private sector? Why doesn't it work in the opposite direction? Why are you not demonizing the public sector? Why are you not demonizing cops and the fire department and government when you argue against Medicare for all? Like, the point is, guys, his arguments are so fucking stupid and sloppy. You're talking to yourself, dude. You're talking to yourself and you're getting everything wrong. What is wrong with you? How dumb are you? Who is this going to uh, fucking appeal to? A group of Wall Street assholes eating dinner at a $1,000 steakhouse in New York City? Is that who this is going to appeal to? Is it going to appeal to a lobbyist class in D.C. who's going to pat you on the back and tell you you're a genius until you're going to go far in this race even though you're polling at fucking zero percent? Who are you appealing to? I'll tell you who you're appealing to. Yourself and all breakfast cereal makers across the country. Because finally, 
they at least got their name out there, Hickenloopers. So you're, you're a joke, you're comical, and how dare you fucking compare the most moral man who's been against all these wars and against death and destruction his entire career, you're comparing him to somebody who killed maybe some of the most people in history on his own, Stalin. So go fuck yourself. Um, you're a piece of garbage, and you're going to continue to poll at 0%, and you ain't budging, and you'll drop out at 0%. All right, let me take my final break. When we come back, I got Elizabeth Warren. You're not going to want to miss that. I got Kamala Harris, and I got Ken Klippenstein breaking an amazing story that you do not want to miss, bitch. All right, stay right there. We will be right back.
a bitch. All right, we're back, y'all. Oh, shit. Should I go to the... Yeah, you know what? Let me go, let me go to the breaking news real quick. I might as well do the breaking news real quick. Okay. <clears throat> Okay, let me set this up for you. So, Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez have a little bit of breaking news for us here. They both uh, unveiled a new policy that they proposed together. She'll obviously, you know, propose it in the House. He brings it up in the Senate. Um, And it's a good one. It's a good one if I don't say so myself. So what they're doing is they want to cap the interest rate that financial institutions can charge you at 15%. So they cannot charge more than 15% interest. Now, that would be huge if they got it through. Obviously, they're not going to get it through right now. They don't have control of the Senate, um, and they don't have the presidency either. But this is one of those issues where it's working class versus elite, the populists versus the establishment. And it, it's a clear distinction, and you know who's on what side. If you're on the side of letting financial institu- institutions charge over 15% interest, well, you're saying, I'm... I'm with management. I'm with the owner class. I'm with the big institutions that are ripping people off. And listen, man, this is the kind of financial regulation that makes perfect sense. I mean, they should have rules about this kind of stuff. They should have rules also about um, banks being over-leveraged because that's a giant fundamental risk to the economy functioning is if they're taking on uh, too much risk. There, there should be rules about separating commercial banking from investment banking. That's, of course, what Glass-Steagall was, and that was repealed. And even though the repeal of that led to the subprime mortgage crisis and the Great Recession, we still don't have Glass-Steagall back in place. So at least the conversation is being had now, and the debate is now happening of we can't just let these financial institutions do whatever the fuck they want, because when we do that, They just start ripping Americans off. And Elizabeth Warren was big on this. She's the one who came up with the idea of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which, if I'm not mistaken, returned $12 billion to defrauded Americans. So, in other words, big financial institutions would rip people off and lie to them and commit fraud. It happened to me. Credit card company charged me identity theft protection. There was nothing. There was nothing there. They were just lying about it and then stealing my money. And the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau... Cut me a check because they were like, you got ripped off. We cracked down on them. Here you go. See, that's what we need in this country. We need the government to represent the people, not represent the special interests, not even represent both, which is what the Democrats try to do right now. You have the Republicans who only represent the special interests. That's it. (laughs) And the Democrats come along and go, yeah, we'll half represent the people and half represent special interests. No, fuck that. So now Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez are fighting on this front, and I think it's absolutely brilliant. Now, U.S. cardholders are expected to pay 120, 20, 120, 20, 
billion dollars in interest charges in 2019. That's 12% more than what they paid in 2017 and 50% more than what they paid as recently as 2014. Now, furthermore, we covered this story a while ago, but it's important to bring up now in the context of this story. Did you know the predatory payday loan industry, they're a $40 billion industry, okay? And they have routinely donated to the Republican Party and to Donald Trump. So since 2015, they've lent $1.5 million to congressional lawmakers. By the way, including some Democrats like Debbie Wasserman Schultz. We should be clear about that. And they've even given $6.2 million to uh, politicians at the state level. So they're buying everybody everywhere because they want to continue to get away with robbing you. Um, They gave $250,000 to Trump's inauguration. And and two of the most prominent predatory payday lenders gave $500,000 to to Trump's campaign. So probably super PAC or whatever, because you can't give that amount in one go. Um, But $250,000 for the inauguration, $500,000 each. That also went to Trump. And they had their annual conference at Trump's golf course in Miami. So these are all ways of basically legally trying to bribe them. So what did Trump do and what did the Republicans do in response? Well, there were these Obama-era regulations that were about to be rolled out on the predatory payday loan industry, and the Trump administration axed them. They're like, done, deregulated, you get to do whatever you want. Also, there were court cases going on, and the Trump administration dropped the court cases. See, this is illegal bribery in America. Hey, donate to my inauguration. Hey, donate to my campaign. Hey, donate to the state Republican Party. Donate to Republicans in Congress and some Democrats. And then what, what do you want? I got you, dog. So now, after all that, what are they allowed to do? What are these guys allowed to do? Guys, you know how much they, they charge an interest rate for uh, predatory payday loans? 390%. They charge up to 390%. Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez are fighting for working people. They want to cap interest rates at 15%. Listen, if I'm not mistaken, and I could be wrong about this because I'm going deep in the memory bank on this one, so please, by all means, fact check me and correct my ass in the comment section um, if I'm wrong about it. But I think there used to be rules about how much interest you could charge. And then we had a giant era of deregulation, and you know now we're back to square one with a lot of this stuff. So this is, to me, I file this under the duh category. We should have, like I said, leverage rules. We should have a a wall of separation between commercial banking and investment banking. Um, And we should have caps on on the interest rate. You know, hey, you can have a debate as to what that line is, but you bet your ass there should be a line. At a certain point, it literally is just preying on poor, poor folks. That's it. So it's a great... A piece of legislation, and now that Bernie's one of the front runners in the in the presidential race, and Alexandria Ocasio Cortez is one of the most, if not the most, followed member of Congress on social media. Now, now it's got some legs. Now these conversations are seriously happening, as opposed to just occurring on the margins. 
Okay, now we're going to go to Elizabeth Warren. She was just as prescient in um, the clip that you're going to see of her. Let me just pull up the proper video. Oh, I'm sorry, not the video, the uh, graphic. Young Elizabeth Warren. All right, here we go. So this clip of Elizabeth Warren that you're about to see is from 2004, uh, and it resurfaced on social media, and you'll be able to figure out why pretty quickly. So here she brilliantly breaks down the dynamic that led to the subprime mortgage crisis and the Great Recession. This is four years before that happened, and she saw it coming. I got to be honest with you guys, I love this shit. I love seeing Bernie back in the day. There's video of Bernie in the 1990s on the floor of Congress defending gay people. You have to understand something. That's not a thing that happens in the 1990s. We weren't even having the beginning of the conversation of gay marriage or anything like that. Gay rights, what? What That conversation was not hap- happening nationally. Bernie was still upfront about it and making the argument. Way ahead of his time. In so many ways. Him arguing against the Iraq war and just like predicting everything that's going to happen. There are countless clips of Bernie Sanders early in his career nailing it. Well, now you know there's also a couple of Elizabeth Warrens doing the same thing. So here she is warning about the dynamic that led to the Great Recession. her blind spots. Foreign policy is a clear blind spot for her, in my opinion. But her wheelhouse is tax policy, Wall Street, 
and economic stuff. Um, and when you see a clip like this, that mean, this means something. It means that you have foresight, and it means that groupthink is incredibly powerful, man. I'm telling you, you go back and watch clips of CNBC, okay, leading up to the subprime mortgage crisis and the Great Recession. There is literally just one dissenting voice of the dozens of hosts and guests. Everybody says the same shit. Oh, yes, the economy's great. Oh, yes, we're moving in the right direction. Oh, yes, the growth is going to continue. Oh, yes, there's not going to be a slowdown at all. Oh, yes, maybe some minor bumps in the road, but we're chugging right along, and there will be no severe downturn. That's exactly what every single person was saying back then. And then you have this one senator who's like, no, let me explain to you the real dynamic and how it's working and how this is a game, and eventually, you know, the chickens are going to come home to roost. That means she's not doing groupthink. She's independently thinking and looking at the evidence. You think Joe Biden was looking at fucking evidence and, and, you know, coming to rational conclusions? Are you fucking kidding me? No, of course not. Of course not. He was going like this. Where's the political wind blowing? Okay, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, the economy is strong. It's great. It's wonderful. Did I vote for the deregulation that led to this? <laughs> so um, this is important. It shows independent thought. And th- like I said, this is her wheelhouse. Tax policy, Wall Street policy, economics in general. She saw it coming, man. She saw it coming. There's a class of candidates that I'm very comfortable voting for, and I'm, I'd be happy voting for. I wish we had ranked choice voting. I really do. Because there's a grouping of them that I just, I like them. Like I said, they all have uh, certain blind spots, but you got Bernie, you got Tulsi, you got Elizabeth Warren. To a lesser extent, you got Andrew Yang, but okay. Um, I have some big disagreements with him, but I think he's an honest actor, and I agree with him on a lot of the stuff he pushes for. Um, I love clips like this because I think that this shows, this shows character. When you can go, when we can look at what everybody was saying during an era when they were dead wrong, and you poked your head out, and you were like, I'm just saying, here's what I think. That means a lot, man. That means a lot. That means a lot. And if you don't get it, then you're just failing to properly imagine what the era was like. We're in one right now, by the way. Right now, same shit. Same shit. How many segments have you seen me do where I come out here and I warn you? I'm like, they say the economy's good, the economy's not good, I guarantee you we're in a bubble, I guarantee you at some point it's going to crash, I don't know exactly when it's going to crash, but it's going to crash, this shit is all fake growth, um, you know, wages are still stagnant, working people are struggling, you got, you know, uh, college debt, people are in that up to their eyeballs, credit card debt. You got the housing bubble reinflated. You got a totally unregulated derivatives market. Tick motherfucking tock, bitch. Tick tock. So, yeah. The foresight is impressive. And um, it's even more impressive given that next to nobody at the time was accurately making the case like she just did. Okay, next. Let's go to Kamala Harris's 
So Kamala Harris spoke to the NAACP, and she said something that everybody kind of, you know, just glossed over, but I paused and reflected on it, and it's a little ominous. So let's take a look, and then we'll discuss. accountable for the hate infiltrating their platforms because they have a responsibility. If you profit off of hate, if you act as a megaphone for misinformation or cyber warfare, if you don't police your platforms, we are going to hold you accountable as a community. What does that mean? What does that mean? Listen, you're a senator. You're a senator. So what you're talking about, you're threatening, like, legal action. What does that mean? We're going to go after social media if they don't crack down on hate and cyber warfare and misinformation. I'll tell you how I interpret it. You tell me if you think I'm wrong. But when I hear that, what I hear is the whole cyber warfare thing is like, oh, here we go. Russia is going to attack our election, and we need to make sure that Social media like Twitter and Facebook are cracking down on Russian disinformation and misinformation. But that argument can be used to crack down on anybody who's parroting a line that's not in agreement with the U.S. establishment. When I come out here and I talk about how we need to get out of Syria, a bunch of idiots will will pop up and say, you're doing Putin's bidding. It can't be that I have a principled belief that we shouldn't do offensive wars against countries that don't attack us. No. It has to be, you're doing Putin's bidding. So you see the problem with this? You see the problem with this? You can't, there are certain things that they're not going to allow you to say. You know, we were talking about it the other day, but if you're axing people, because like Paul Joseph Watson, they kicked off of um, Facebook, And, okay, I mean, he was affiliated with Alex Jones, and he did dabble in some 9-11 conspiracy stuff, but outside of that, he just appears to be kind of like a mainstream conservative. So what is it? Are you axing him for the 9-11 truth stuff? Is that why they're axing him? And if you're axing him for that, then are you going to get rid of all of the 9-11 truth stuff online? Because then you're opening a door to just saying, well, whatever we deem a conspiracy, we're going to get rid of. Then what about the JFK conspiracy, where like over half the country thinks that, JF, that the way the government describes it happening is not the way it happened? Are you going to get rid of that too? And what about when you guys say something is a conspiracy, but it's really not, and you're just cracking down on people who are saying the correct thing, but it's a small minority? You know, like, for example, the people who argued, hey, the WikiLeaks uh, documents are correct, We now know what Hillary was saying behind closed doors about we need a public position and a private position, um, and the Iraq war is good for business, um, and the thousand things she said, like on free trade, we need totally free and open trade borders, which would be like NAFTA on steroids, the fact that the DNC was basically rigging it uh, in favor of Hillary, and they were acting as an arm of the Hillary campaign to the point where she would get the final say on press releases for the DNC— All this stuff we learned, now at the time, they were trying to say, no, 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 that's a conspiracy. And even if you say it's not a conspiracy, well, it came from Russia, and this is disinformation. This is a campaign of uh, an attack on our election. You've got to stop it. So you you see where this can go wrong? You shouldn't give any outlet, any company, any board of leaders the ability 
to, to censor and deplatform because once you do that, who's going to watch the Watchmen? Why do you assume they're always going to get it right? Why do you assume they're always going to have the purest of motives and intent? Why would you assume that? There's no reason to assume that. When you say we got to crack down on hate, well, listen, we all, nobody wants to defend fucking um, ISIS. Nobody wants to defend Al-Qaeda. Nobody wants to defend the KKK. What happens when they, when the right wing turns around and they say, well, listen, okay, you want to get rid of hate? Fine. Well, you got to get rid of uh, Antifa. They just did an attack on somebody or they did some property damage or something and they're saying, you know, we're going to attack the Nazi scum, yada, yada. You got to get rid of them. And you're saying, Kyle, that's hypothetical. No, it's not. Patreon already did this. Patreon axed, they axed some right-wing accounts, but then they turned around and they axed uh, uh, an Antifa account. So the problem is the principle you're buying into. That's what people need to get, and they don't get it, is that you're buying into a principle of, yeah, go ahead. You guys, you know, micromanage, and you determine who gets to say, who doesn't get to say, who gets to speak, who doesn't get to speak, what topics are okay and what topics are not okay. And what you add is a free-for-all. So once they come for the, the right-wing groups, okay, boom. Then you got Antifa's going down. You got socialist gun owners going down. You got left-wing black identitarian movements that are going down, like the new Black Panther Party. You, all that stuff. I'm not saying there's an equivalent between the left-wing groups and the right-wing groups. What I'm saying is all anybody has to argue is that there is an equivalence between them, and then the people at the top are going to buy into it and go, okay, yeah, sure. Close enough. Well, we can't just ask. And I've already heard people make the argument. Well, 90 some odd percent or 70 some odd percent of the people you're banning are right leaning. So there needs to be some sort of parody here. And then it's like they look for shit on the left to ban. <laughs> see, I'm not, not see, we ban left wingers too. So we're not, we're not biased against the right. You're opening the door to censorship and deplatforming. It will come back and bite you in the ass. And so when she says, we got, you got to police these platforms, you got to get rid of the hate, you got to stop the cyber warfare and misinformation. They literally argued that Black Lives Matter was a Russian plot. Well, uh, the Russians are sowing racial discord in this country, and that's why we need to, you know, we need to stop this Russian misinformation campaign and this Russian troll shit. I'm telling you, man, they stop at nothing. When they open that door, you'd be surprised at how far they'll go. So my whole thing is, if you're on the left, you should be arguing first and foremost for basically having like a net neutrality thing for the social media companies. And what that means is expand the First Amendment to protect freedom of speech on social media because it's the new public square. So basically have a system where, yes, you can't do direct threats of violence. That's obvious. There are rules. It's not complete and utter anarchy. But if they're acting anybody, there's got to be a transparent process, and they basically have to prove that, hey, this is why we need to get rid of this person. You can't just willy-nilly do it and act like nothing. But instead, what's being argued for, left and right, is, no, let's allow some fucking nameless, faceless Silicon Valley oligarchs to determine who can and can't stay. Well, I got news for you. They're also biased. And they have their own opinions and their own beliefs and their own conflicts of interest. And we've already seen it in the case of Israel. They pull off on Facebook um, pro-Palestinian groups because Israel says you've got to get rid of them because we say so. You think those things are not going on at the U.S. government? You think these heads of these companies are not listening to the U.S. government? Of course they are. Of course they are. 
So all, fine, you want everything to be CNN? Everything will be CNN. That's what will happen. But if everything's CNN, man, it's going to be a fucking mess, and it's going to be terrible because they get shit wrong all the time. What do you do when it's a mainstream outlet that's pushing a conspiracy like Russiagate, and they turned out to be wrong? There was no evidence of collusion, according to the Mueller report. What then? Should all of them get banned? Should, all, should they all get banned when they push for the Iraq war, which was an illegal offensive war against a country that didn't attack us? Should they all get banned? You're using their logic. They say yes. Because you're saying, hey, if they spread misinformation, if they're conspiracy theorists, if they spread hate, you got to get rid of them. That led to the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people, the Iraq war propaganda that was dead wrong. Should they get pulled? The default position should be protect free speech, only in rare instances can you take action against them. But instead, you got Kamala Harris and many others arguing, no, you better crack down more. You better be more authoritarian and censorious and be in favor of deplatforming. I disagree. Okay, Ken Klippenstein time. He's got an amazing story that I'm going to share with you now. So Ken Klippenstein of TYT Investigates uncovered something that is incredibly disturbing. He says, member of border militia that detained 200 migrants at gunpoint told police another member had said, quote, why are we not lining them up and shooting them? We have to go back to Hitler days and put them all in a gas chamber per report I obtained under the Freedom of Information Act. Huh? So they call Ken Klippenstein the FOIA king, the Freedom of Information Act king, because he's nonstop just requesting requesting documents through, I sound like Alex Jones, the documents, I got the documents, requesting documents through the Freedom of Information Act. And he pulls stuff like this. This is incredible. So the border militia calls itself the United Constitutional Patriots. At least they did until this story broke. And they're like, us, bro? We're not the the United Constitutional Patriots. We're changing our name because we don't want to be affiliated with this stuff anymore, bro. So that's what they called themselves. They recently detained 200 migrants, okay, including women and children. And they did it at gunpoint. Um, And then what they do is they impersonate Border Patrol, and that's a federal offense. So the FBI actually got involved, and they arrested the leader of this group because they're like, what are you doing, bro? You can't do this. (laughs) You can't, you know, go out there with your guns and pretend like you're Border Patrol and hold people up at gunpoint. You you don't have the authority to do that. Um, Now, you ready for the part of the story that I think is the most damning part? You would think the most damning part is like, hey, we should – Go back to the Hitler days and gas these people. That's insane. But what's even more insane is the Border Patrol welcomed their help. So you got a bunch of fucking maniacs with guns playing cop, playing Border Patrol agent, lying about being Border Patrol agents, holding up women and children with guns, saying shit like, why are we not lining them up and shooting them? We have to go back to the Hitler days and put them all in the gas chamber. And the fucking Border Patrol was like, yeah, you know, these guys seem all right. Let's work with them. Let's welcome their help. Oh, my God, man. Oh, what have we done? What have we done? Now, 
President Adderall was doing a a rally yesterday in Florida, and he was talking about the border. And somebody yelled, shoot him! And Trump, like, laughed a little bit and said, only in the panhandle, Florida panhandle, can you get away with saying something like that. And the audience was laughing and shit. I think of my mom, who was a Republican growing up, and think of, like, if she was in that crowd, how would she have reacted? And there's no doubt in my mind. She would have been like, oh, and she would have left. Because any decent person, if they hear that, like, oh, how should we deal with people coming into the country? Shoot them. Who the fuck hears that and thinks it's funny or partly agrees with it? Like, really? Well, they're breaking the law. That's what you got. You got to stop them somehow. You know what else is breaking the law? Jaywalking. Should you put a fucking AR-15 up to their temple and put a bullet through the center because they jaywalked? You think that's a reasonable reaction to it? Speeding is illegal. Should you get killed for it? Crossing a border illegally, you're going to kill them on the spot. Well, you don't believe in the Constitution. You don't believe in freedom. You don't believe in justice. You don't believe in due process. You don't believe in habeas corpus. You don't believe in rule of law. You believe in fucking authoritarian government. You believe in dictatorship. You believe in offensive violence. That's what you believe in. Offensive violence. But the fact that that joke was made, joke, I'm being kind by calling it a joke, a guy was probably serious, and people were like, ha, 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 yeah, shoot him, shoot him. And it's being made the same week we got information that these assholes working with the Border Patrol were saying shit like, we should go back to the Hitler days. Listen, that is some scary shit, man. You got to keep it real. I'm not a fan of the Nazi comparison. It never has been. But you don't need to make a Nazi comparison when you're quoting one of them and they're saying we should be like the Nazis. That's not a comparison. That's a fucking direct quote, bitch. There is no leap of logic here. They're just saying it. They're just fucking saying it. When it, he's at a rally and somebody screams, shoot him, and everybody's like, ha, 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 yes. Shoot the poor brown people escaping, you know, guaranteed misery and poverty and maybe even death in some instances because some of those countries are even more violent than Iraq at the height of the Iraq war, largely because of our drug war, too, and the deep corruption. Yes, our policies help destroy some of these countries and then kill the desperate people looking for a better life coming here. Yes! Something is deeply, deeply wrong. Now, I saved it a whopper fact for here for, here for you at the end. You ready? The dude who made the comment, and this is all on the record now. Other people have come out and verified it who were part of the militia group who have since left. The dude who made the comment, his last name is Gonzalez. Jesus Christ, man. Jesus Christ. That's like having some dude with the last name Schwartz in the Holocaust. Like, you know, we really should stop these Jews, huh? Am I right? Am I right? Dude, how many generations back was it for you and your parents or your grandparents or whoever it was that came? How many generations back? So you want to let them in, but then you want to murder everybody behind them? Or would you have been cool with murdering them too? I mean, listen, let's keep it real, man. They're not talking about the fucking Canadian border, people rushing in. They're talking about from the southern border. 
I'm sure there's plenty of Gonzalez's coming up through the southern border. And your response is, let's shoot them. Well, yeah, but they came in the legal way, and there's, uh, this is the illegal way, and therefore you can shoot them in the face. No, you can't. No, you can't. And also, let's be clear, for people, for genuine cases of amnesty, that's not the word I'm looking for. What's the word I'm looking for? Amnesty. Asylum, that's the word I'm looking for. For genuine cases of people seeking asylum, that is the process. You show up and you're like, I'm seeking asylum, I need to get out. And then there's a process once you get here. So for you to shoot them in the head, well, what if that person was seeking asylum? That's perfectly legal. Perfectly legal. They show up and then there's a process and then they determine whether or not they get asylum. So that could very well be perfectly legal for people showing up here. Now, if you want to say, hey, man, some of them are abusing it. Okay, fair enough. But you know what you have to do? Figure out who is and isn't. You don't shoot them in the fucking face when they show up. Jesus Christ. Well, this is where we are. This is where we are. People talking about shooting migrants at Trump's rallies and literally people working with the Border Patrol who were saying, let's be like Hitler. You would think that this stuff is self-refuting and people would acknowledge immediately how extreme this is and how wrong this is, but there will be a strong contingent of the super far right who look at this and go, right on, baby. Okay. Final story of the day. All right, so this next story here is fascinating because it shows how good policy can quite literally save lives. Raising the minimum wage could prevent suicides for low-income Americans, particularly among women, according to a new working paper from well-respected economists and public health specialists at the University of California at Berkeley. The researchers found that a 10% rise in the minimum wage led to a 3.6% drop in non-drug-related suicides for adults without college degrees. For women who make up the majority of minimum wage workers, a 10% increase led to a 4.6% reduction. The researchers concluded that raising the minimum wage plus expanding the earned income tax credit, a cash benefit for low-wage families, could prevent more than 1,200 suicides a year. Typically, discussion of the minimum wage is defined narrowly as an economic issue. The study demonstrates the far higher life or death stakes faced by low-income workers. Quote, it's not just about jobs and good wages, it's about mental health, said Anna Godoy, a labor economist at the University of California, Berkeley, who co-authored the study. Higher minimum wages are likely to save lives. So this was published in the National Bureau of Economic Research. Now, you know, it's of course important to point out that not all suicides are economic suicides. Uh, It's relatively obvious, and I feel like it doesn't even need to be pointed out because it's so obvious. Um, 
there are plenty of instances of, like, you know, mega-rich people who kill themselves, plenty of instances of poor people who are happy, um, and everything in between. And, you know, there's a plethora of things that can lead somebody to do that or not to do that. There might be an argument for some sort of genetic predisposition uh, for happiness level or, or suicidal tendencies. I'm not sure that all this stuff is as hard of a science as we would all like it to be, because it would be glorious if we all had the answers on this stuff and we all could know with relative certainty what the factors are and what to look out for and all that. Um, but either way, this is fascinating research that at least to an extent, at least to a degree, um, there is a difference. Now, I also, as, as much as I find it not surprising that not all suicides are economic suicides, I also find it not at all surprising that there is a decrease when you have better wages. Because it, it, that's almost like a tautology in the sense that you can say treating people better, giving people a higher quality of life, means they will feel better and they will have a higher quality of life. Now, again, it's not across the board. It's not perfect. Um, but that does in some ways appear to be a tautology where, yeah, people are generally going to feel a lot less stressed, a lot better, and will be less suicidal if they have basic needs met and if they have a living wage and if they have, um, there should be some sort of a study next on, uh, healthcare because I'm sure that there's suicides related on that front too. I mean, we just, I was just talking about in a different, um, story we did, I saw on Twitter very scary stuff about that people were asked, what's the moment that our healthcare system radicalized you? And people, there were multiple examples of my dad killed himself because he had a chronic illness and it was bankrupting the family and he wanted to save the family and not tank our future. So he killed himself so we wouldn't have to keep spending money on his medical bills. I mean, that's beyond heartbreaking, man. That's like as bad as it gets. I have no words for that. That's our current system. So economic hardship, yes, it leads to you're much more likely, people are much more likely to commit suicide in those instances. Um, there's a book about how under right-wing leadership, as a general rule, suicides go up. Isn't that crazy? Because it's not even like, the left-wing respective parties we have throughout the world are really all that left, especially in the U.S. But even the minor differences that we see between neoliberal centrist Democrats and fucking far-right Republicans, even the minor differences in those two parties, it saves lives when you have more economic assistance for people and better governance. It saves lives. So I think that what I find fascinating about this and really important about this is for too long we've been having the argument on, on the right terms, and they argue from an economic perspective, and that's it. So in other words, they'll say something like, well, raising the minimum wage will probably increase unemployment, so we can't do it because that's bad for the economy. That's an argument they would make now. The truth of the matter is, even on their terms, we can beat them because that's actually not true. They've studied this multiple times, and as long as you're raising the minimum wage in a uh, reasonable way where it's gradual over time and then eventually you hit your point, there's no impact on unemployment. And in fact, in some instances, it went the other way. There was more employment. So 
we can beat them on their own terms. However, a common leftist argument, and it makes sense when you read stuff like this, is why are you even fighting the battle on their terms? You could literally have a moral argument and fight on your battlefield, because on your battlefield, they just can't win this argument. So when you come out and say, hey, a new study published in the National Bureau of Economic Research found that raising the minimum wage would prevent 1,200 suicides a year, why do you guys want 1,200 more Americans to kill themselves as a result of economic hardship? Now, that sounds harsh, right? But it also happens to be true. <laughs> you don't care about those 1,200 people. You care more about economic efficiency or whatever goofy idea you came up with. Uh, argument you would even lose on your terms because you're wrong about it being more economically efficient to have no minimum wage or a lower minimum wage. But let, now let's have the conversation I want to have. Here's my conversation. Why are you okay with 1,200 more Americans dying? Why are you okay with poverty wages that make people miserable and make them want to kill themselves? Why are you okay with that? And this shifts the conversation. Now, in real life, the conversation won't be shifted in D.C., but now you know the reality of it. And this is devastating, and this should break everybody's heart because it shows you a lot of the terrible shit going on in our country and around the world. It can be prevented with basic policy solutions. All right. We done, baby. I love you guys. I'll talk to you soon. Everybody enjoy the rest of your day. I'm out. Peace.